0: My name's Renee, if I've not met you before. I'm one of the ministers here on staff at St Alfred's. And uh, as some of you may know, I studied at Ridley College. Um, That was where I studied for my theology degree. And uh, at the time, Peter Adam was our principal, and we would have weekly chapel sermons. And occasionally, when the the principal preached, when Peter Adam preached, he sometimes told jokes to begin his sermon. Uh, Very, very bad jokes... I've got to say, and so I thought I'd begin with some jokes this morning. Where did the sheep get a haircut? Ah. At the barber. Very good. Okay, we're warming up here. How do sheep greet each other at Christmas? Thank you. N- nice guess. A Merry Christmas to you. Ah. Guy goes to the movies. Uh, Sheep walks in, sits next to him. Are you a sheep? Says the man, surprised. Sheep looks up. Yes, I am. The man says, what are you doing at the movies? And the sheep says, well, I like the book. (laughs) Okay, one more. (laughs) What do you call a sheep covered in chocolate? A candy bar. (laughs) While they seemed funny when Peter Adam told them... From time to time, Jesus would use a parable about sheep uh, to get his point across. And in the parables, sheep represent Christians. And you have to ask, what is it about Christians that makes us like sheep in the stories? Some people, not me, but some people would say, well, it's because we're gullible like sheep. Uh, We follow each other uh, and copy each other, even off a cliff. Um, But In Matthew 18, we have a clue. Jesus talks about his disciples as little ones. He means that they are vulnerable. Of course, that's why sheep need shepherds. They're vulnerable to getting attacked, to being stolen, uh, from being trapped or being lost. And this is how Jesus sees us. And this is what Peter McPherson reminded us last week. We're little ones. We're children. We're like children. And we're like sheep, according to Jesus. This is how we should see each other, not primarily as strong, independent, self-reliant, but as vulnerable and needing help. And that makes sense because when someone seems strong and confident to us, it's easier to just let them get on with what they're doing by themselves. But Jesus says we're like a flock of sheep. We're vulnerable and we stray. And when one wanders off God makes an effort. He goes after that one. And when that person is restored, he rejoices to have that one back. You might be familiar with a similar parable. In Luke's gospel, it talks about the lost sheep. But the emphasis on that story is on the people who don't know Jesus. They're not yet part of his flock. And God goes after them. But here in Matthew's gospel, Jesus talks about those who stray. So they know Jesus, he or she is one of his disciples, but they've wandered off. Have you ever seen this happen to a Christian? Someone drifts away from the Christian community. It's painful to watch for lots of reasons. We know that they risk rejecting Jesus altogether. They risk harming themselves and and people close to them. We fear that they may become isolated we wonder what effect this will happen, this will have on the rest of the church. So, why do people stray off? Well, the example Jesus uses immediately following the parable of the sheep is a broken relationship with a fellow believer. The first step to someone becoming bitter with the church and straying from Jesus is conflict with another member. And if you have your Bible there, you can follow along in Matthew 18 or on the screen. I'm reading from verse 15. If a brother or sister sins, go and point out their faults just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. Here we can see the great significance we play in other people's lives. If we're part of a church, we have an incredible responsibility towards others because it turns out we're not just individuals. We don't behave as independently as we'd like to think. We act, we make decisions as part of a group, whatever group we happen to be a part of, whether that's a political party, a sports team, um, your year group at school or uni, a, a weekly park run group, board game club, or even a church. We're influenced by others and we influence them. We have an impact on others for good, or for ill. Remember, this teaching of Jesus is in response to the question the disciples asked in verse 1. They, they asked him, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And this whole chapter is Jesus' answer to that question, or rather, that attitude behind the question. And he says, Don't pursue your own agenda, don't be consumed by your own ambition, but be mindful of your brothers and sisters in Christ and remember that you're responsible for them. Sometimes I hear people say, well, I can be a Christian without going to church. I can worship alone at home, in the car, on my morning walk. And I always wonder when I hear that, what's the motivation behind that thinking? Why would they want to be alone? Do they find relationships difficult in general? Have they had a bad experience of the church congregation? But someone might say, well, just let that person go. Maybe they need some time to sort their stuff out. Or or perhaps this thought has entered your mind. Maybe things would be easier around here without them. But this is the radical message of Matthew 18. God loves us all. And in the same way, we're called to love each other. We're responsible for each other. And we can only do that in community, not as solo agents. And when someone strays, it's our duty and our privilege to go after them as a matter of priority. Earlier in the Gospel, back in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus uses a scenario to illustrate our responsibility towards one another. In Matthew chapter 5, he says... If you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Now making an offer, an offering at the altar is... In the temple in Jerusalem wasn't just something you did lightly or for kicks and giggles. No, this was serious business. Offering sacrifices was a high point in the calendar of a Jewish person. Something you prepared for and planned and looked forward to. But even then, Jesus says, reconciliation with a brother or sister should take priority, even over your sacrifice. But whereas in Matthew chapter 5, the offence lies with us, we realise that we're the ones who are in the wrong. In Matthew 18, the roles are switched. The other person has done wrong. And yet, we're still called to take the initiative to go and raise the issue with them and them alone. Now, when we hear this, a a bunch of objections rise up in our minds, and I'll just address three of those now. First objection, maybe you don't like conflict. Maybe you'd rather stay quiet than have the hard conversation. I think that's many of us here. But that's why Jesus makes the point of instructing us to do this because it's not our natural inclination. It's stressful, it's tiring, it costs us emotionally to have to go and approach someone who wronged us. And uh, I should say, I'm not just talking about a one-off lapse of manners here he took my seat on a Sunday morning or she wasn't effusive enough about the steaks I brought for dinner. Uh, No, we're talking about ongoing, persistent sin. Unrepentant sin such that would lead a person away from Jesus and away from uh, others in the church. Now, it may not be our preference to challenge someone, but when you consider the alternative our response should be to intervene rather than to avoid. Now, a second objection. Uh, There are some situations where the balance of power between uh, myself and the person who's offended is is such that it would be harmful to go and approach them alone. Of course, we want to be wise in those situations and and get help and advice from someone we trust. But in 99% of cases the first step is to approach the person one-to-one. And in the majority of cases, there's great wisdom in this principle of dealing with your stuff, with the other person and with them alone. See, my instinct is to gossip, to go and tell someone else, anyone other than the person who's done me wrong. Then I feel better, but I've just drawn someone else into the conflict. Now, I've complicated the relationship between this person and the person who's offended me. I've created a triangle. I'm not dealing with the relationship, the broken relationship directly. And I feel better in the short term, having done a bit of gossip, but I've only made things more difficult, more painful. So Jesus tells us, as a first port of call, go and take it up with that person and with them alone. And a third objection Sometimes we hear Christians say, well, we can't judge. We're all sinners in need of grace. Who are we to judge others? But I want to say we have to judge. We have to decide if certain actions are right or wrong. We, we have a moral compass. That's part of what it means to be made in the image of God. We know when someone's done wrong by us. The trick is, what do you do next? Do you avoid, exclude, gossip? Or do you try and go after and try and reconcile that person back to you? Back in chapter 7, Jesus says, judge yourself first. Check your motivations. Check your prejudice. Examine your own sins. Then you can judge more clearly. But in the end, there's no avoiding it. We're still called to judge. And what is our ultimate aim in going to someone, in, in confronting, confronting that wandering person? It's not to make sure they know how offended we are, although that might happen. It's not to make ourselves feel superior. We know that we have our own faults and blind spots. Now, the reason for going after someone with their fault is to reconcile them back to ourselves, back to the church. Jesus says that each of us has the potential for great destruction. says that in verse 6. We can make each other stumble and fall away. But here in verse 15, we discover that we also have power to restore a wandering brother or sister, to prevent others from falling away, from stumbling, by going to them to seek reconciliation. So, can you think of a difficult person at church? Don't look at them now. (laughs) How would you normally deal with them? With gossip? or by doing the hard thing, by approaching them directly, looking for a a resolution to the conflict. And that's not easy. But we may realise that there was someone who left our church and we didn't do that hard work of pursuing them and bringing them back in. And God forgives us those lapses and, and our sin is covered by Jesus' reconciling work on our behalf, his life, his death and his rising again to life. But true repentance means a renewed commitment to our brothers and sisters in this sacrificial way. Because the rewards are immense. Verse 15 says, if they are responsive, if they admit their sin and repent, then you have won them back. The course of their lives has altered. Their eternal future has been restored and the Father rejoices. And we should be people who invite this kind of ministry from others. If I've sinned against you, and I've only been at St. Alph's for a year, but I'm sure a sinful person like myself would have caused harm and offence to others, well, please address it with me. That's a dangerous invitation to make, isn't it? Please form an orderly queue after the service. But come and win me back. Don't stay angry with me. Let's be countercultural. Let's be courageous. Let's pursue our brothers and sisters in Christ and not leave them to stray. Now, what if there's a complication in our attempt to reconcile? What if you've shown a member of the church their faults and you've sought to do this in a clear and respectful way? What was that phrase? Radical candour. Uh, but they're still not responsive. Well, Jesus addresses this in verse 16. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. And the statement about witnesses is in quotation marks because it's a reference to the old covenant principle of not making a final judgment on the basis of only one witness. So in this case, the one or two others that you bring along to speak with the offender, uh, they, these witnesses may not have witnessed the original offence. Okay? So they might have not been there in the room when it happened. Uh, but they can be present to hear both sides of the story and to offer their own wisdom uh, to the situation. So this may, may be a mediator that you both trust or it may be a couple of people who can bring their experience and objective judgment to the situation. And so with one or two other perspectives, that might be enough to bring the brother or sister to repentance. But if not, and this is the third step that Jesus gives us, tell it to the church, verse 17. And this may involve a statement in front of the congregation, if this issue is serious enough to warrant that. In most cases, though, uh, that that won't happen, and we've never done this at St Alphs. And in our context, it would probably do more harm than good. So instead of something quite so public, you'll invite someone with an official capacity in the church, a member of staff, uh, one of the ministers or a council member, and they'll join you in seeking to bring back that little one, that straying member of the flock, And help him or her to recognise their fault. But what if none of these approaches work? Verse 17 continues And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Now, there have been PhDs written on what this statement means. What does it mean to treat someone like a pagan or a tax collector? On the one hand, we know that Jesus was notorious for spending time with society's outcasts and becoming familiar with them. Today, we may look at producers of methamphetamine in the same way that people of Jesus' day looked at tax collectors, someone who got rich at others' expense. But on the other hand, we know that when Zacchaeus, the tax collector, when he ate with Jesus, he gave up his exploitation of others and made recompense. And we'd assume that when Zacchaeus became a member of the church that he continued to work in that ethical way. So in this case, the people who are like pagans and tax collectors that Jesus mentioned are those who are living lives of ongoing, unrepentant, false worship, breaking God's law, and harming others. How would we treat someone like that? that's a difficult question and it would depend on the situation but for starters we we wouldn't let them have a position of leadership in the church would we ask them to stop attending our church gatherings well that's a much more difficult call to make now in 21st century australia our legal system does some of this work for us for example if someone has a restraining order against them they aren't permitted to attend church with the one who took out the restraining order. And that's clear cut. And we can be thankful that we have a legal process uh, that we, uh, we can trust in this way. <clears throat> An example of a, a situation of boundary setting that exists for Anglican churches is that if someone has a strike against their working with children check, and the church is, made, the, the church is then made aware of that, and we will take steps to restrict their access to vulnerable people. Now this person of concern is also registered with CURA and if you're not familiar with them that's an independent organisation who investigates safe ministry concerns in the Anglican Diocese of Melbourne. Now St Luke's also has policies if an act of violence or abuse happens in our sphere of influence say on our property or at one of our events uh, a church member is made aware of it there's a clear process for that as well. Report it to the police. That's the first thing. And reported to Kiura as well. And if the offence isn't criminal, but it's still destructive, then we have a hierarchy of ministers. We have a senior minister. Uh, we have bishops in the Anglican Church, and they can be called in depending on the situation. So this is just a few examples of some boundary setting that exists in our society and in our church as well. But the command of verse seventeen. Treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. will mean different things in different situations. And this will take wisdom. If we're going to do this in a way that builds and protects rather than destroys. There have been some church traditions that have moved too hastily towards exclusion, towards um, ostracism. That's led to a lot of harm. And damage the reputation of the church. Remember, the motivation in all this is not to punish, but to lead them back to a full, restored life of discipleship. The title we've given this series in Matthew's Gospel is Life in the Kingdom. And we're quickly realizing that life in the kingdom is messy this side of Jesus' return. It's messy. But if we take Jesus' guidance, we can avoid things becoming toxic. We can commit to being relationally healthy, pursuing good relationships, and sometimes that'll be hard work. But a healthy community doesn't sweeps it under the carpet, but it deals with it intentionally, compassionately. When we pass the peace at communion, and we haven't been doing this lately because of health. Reasons, But when we do that, that's a tangible way of saying that we're at peace with one another. And if there's someone in the room you couldn't say that to, someone you're not at peace with, then be like the Israelite in Matthew 5, who left his offering at the altar until he was reconciled. Make it a priority to seek forgiveness or to forgive your brother or sister. You may decide not to partake in communion until you've attempted reconciliation. And as the minister, I may ask someone not to take communion. If we've done this process that Jesus described, but they're still out of step with God and out of step with their brothers and sisters, then I, I may take steps to limit their full participation in the community until they have shown repentance. And Jesus tells us that this decision is ratified by God whether we're successful in bringing a believer to repentance or if they remain in rebellion. Verse 18. <clears throat> he says, Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now This gets further fleshed out in the parable of the unforgiving servant. So I'll leave that to Weihan to fully explain that to you next week. I'm sure he'll do a great job of that. Uh, but Jesus is basically saying in verse 18 that God confirms what the consensus of the body of believers determines. Whether a person shows repentance and is loosed from their sin and permitted to have full membership in the community or remains in sin is bound, restricted, forbidden from full participation in the church. <clears throat> So, everything I've described here has the potential for discomfort, for anxiety, for pain, for misunderstanding. Why would we go through this process as Jesus has described here? Well, because we want to do everything that we can to avoid being the stumbling block of verse 6 if we see an opportunity to reconcile with or restore a fellow Christian and we pass it up, well, Jesus says, woe to us. The impact of that is devastating because Jesus cares for each of us individually the way a shepherd cares for the flock. And he wants us to love the way he loves So in closing, how can you make sure that the next opportunity to love like this doesn't pass you by? How can we have this same kind of care for individual members of the flock the way Jesus does? Because let's face it, it's not every week we'll be bowling up to someone and pointing out their sins to them. That might only happen every second week (laughs) or every second Tuesday of the month. So how can we regularly... Show care to our brothers and sisters. Well, committing to meeting each other like this our weekly at our weekly church services is a great start. Coming to church and staying around afterwards for morning tea is a great way to help others to know you. Talking to someone new at morning tea. Getting to know people in our community that we don't know very well. What else? Well, we can pray for each other. We can share things about ourselves that we need prayer for. Join a growth group. This is what growth groups do in our community. Take the opportunity to show hospitality to others and to receive hospitality back. But most of all, we can show care by forgiving our brothers and sisters from the heart when they admit their wrong and desire reconciliation. And when we're the ones who have been sought after and forgiven, the way this passage describes, then we can thank God that he's given us such caring, servant-hearted brothers and sisters who would go out of their way in order to seek reconciliation And having been forgiven by the church, we shouldn't be anxious that God holds a different opinion of us than than our, our brothers and sisters do. Why not? Because God concurs with the church's offer of forgiveness. Verse 19. Again, truly, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done by them, by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. Where the church forgives, God forgives. These verses are wonderful reassurance for those with heavy consciences who may scarcely believe that the things they've done may be forgiven by their brothers and sisters in Christ, let alone the judge of all the earth. So the judging work of the two or three in verse 16 results in the reconciliation of the sinner with God. Here in verse 19, let's pray that God would give us the same heart that he does for the church, a personal concern for one another, especially those who stray, because we know that he watches over us and knows each one of us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know that these are verses that are easy to describe, but so difficult to put into practice. We ask that you would give us courage, wisdom, and honesty when it comes to pursuing one another and not letting one little one stray from the flock. We pray that you would give us your Holy Spirit, that you would strengthen us to have this kind of courage and to desire purity amongst, uh, in, in your church, amongst our believers. And we pray that uh, yeah, we would be the ones who look after the little ones amongst us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.